forever. Dog. I needed three easy credits. I needed something that I didn't have to work at. Lo and behold, all the other courses for which I had no aptitude suddenly fell by the wayside, and I concentrated on the acting, and that was that. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless or The Big Bang Theory or my arc on CBS's The United States of Al. Our guest this week is Bruce Greenwood. Now, Bruce first came onto my radar in the 80s when I watched him on St. Elsewhere, but since then, he's had a fascinating and diverse career uh, stretching from incredibly uh, serious indie favorites to big franchise uh, features. He's got such an amazing career. We were only able to cover just a few highlights, really, but we talk about St. Elsewhere, and we talk about one of uh, my favorite films that I'm only ever going to see once, The Sweet Hereafter. We talk about his work with David Milch, and we talk about his time on a coal rig. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Bruce Greenwood. I am, am told we pulled you away from, uh, you, you were doing your rounds this morning, apparently. Uh, somebody... Yes, I, I was. I was a friend of mine called me with uh, which I with something I diagnosed as a bursitis issue. However, I know nothing. I just play a doctor on TV. But uh, I encourage her to go see a professional. But after taking a, a small fee. But you've been playing a doctor, uh, a brilliant doctor, a brilliant doctor with some demons uh, for like three or four years now. I mean, you've got to have picked up a couple things. Uh, I suppose more than anything, I've, I've, I've picked up phrases that sound as though I know what I'm talking about, but oh, that's, that's deadly. You know, we living in Atlanta, it's, it's, it's been actually pretty great. There's, it's a, there's a, there's a great music scene there, but there's also a lot of places you can walk around. There's a place called the, the, uh, the belt line. And we were walking along the belt line last year and stopped to take a CPR course, you know, so just one of those quick really? CPRs, you know, you know, do, 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 staying alive, staying alive, doom. <laughs> to keep that tempo, you know. The first time you came on 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 my radar was was St. Elsewhere. Um, you don't look that old. Uh, oh, you aren't you the sweetest? Um, that will get you nowhere. Um, <laughs> but I I was I, I loved that show, and I, I have sort of a two part question. For one thing, it was interesting because you you look at that role compared to some of the stuff you've done later. Um, that doctor was kind of a hothead compared to the, like, even when he becomes a born-again Christian, he does it kind of rashly and impulsively. Yeah, I mean, it was just, well, he was a young man and completely driven by ego. And and uh, and then, you know, 35 years later, I start playing a guy on, on this show who originally was completely driven by ego and self-absorbed and self-obsessed also. But they, they realized on this show, the resident pretty, within pretty quickly, not quick enough in my opinion, but pretty quickly, that if he was, if he continued to be this bad, there was no way they could keep him in the hospital. So they had to give him a, you know, give him a couple of events that had him reconsider, a, you know, a Gethsemane moment and a come to Jesus moment that he, okay, I've got to, I have to reorient my priorities or I'm not going to have a job. There's something, well, let's, let's back up for a moment. Um, I'm, I'm completely flipped this, this, uh, we started with the resident and I've completely flipped this, uh, this backwards. So you, you grow up in a pretty small city in Quebec. Well, if, point- if growing up is only in, includes the first six months, yeah. But I don't, I'm not sure I really grew up that much within those six months. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, so my, where, where did you grow up You know, up my then? basic worldview, I hadn't been, wasn't quite formed at six months. I'm assuming if you, if six months in Quebec, you're a separatist right out of the gate. Well, that would goes without saying. Yeah. There's, yeah. you can't okay. get out of, of, sure, your, sure. of your mother without, signing papers to that effect. So so where did you grow up then? All over really. We went from uh Quebec to Vancouver for a minute, then to Princeton, New Jersey, then to Bethesda, Maryland, then back to Princeton. And it, and by the sixth grade we moved to Vancouver. So we and I really consider myself a you know, a Vancouver boy. Oh really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Vancouver. It's such a great city. Have you gotten to work there? Oh, many, many times, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the most American actors who've worked in Vancouver, so I'm sure. At what point, growing up all over the place like this, were your parents academics? Why were you moving so much? Yeah, my dad is, was a is a geologist, geophysicist. He was working at, he was, went to school at Princeton, then 
and then uh, and then taught there, and then ended up teaching at UBC in uh, in Vancouver. At, at what point, though, if your if your dad's a geologist and you're moving all over the place, at what point do you look at acting as something that could actually be a career? At what oh, point I, it, kind of it was it was one of those things where I I was taking a lot of heavy courses at university in the first year I was there, and and I I. I needed three easy credits. I needed something that I didn't have to work at. And I thought, because I was just so overwhelmed with the other courses, th frankly, that I had no business taking, like physics and economics, which were, you know, if you had a, a brief look inside my brain, you'd realize that was going to be wasted time right from the beginning. But um, I also realized that, well, acting is completely subjective. You can't be failed. Right? So if you show no, up okay, and you sure. do the work to the best of your ability, you'll pass. But the irony was that it spoke to all the things that I really loved, like language and storytelling and humor. And lo and behold, all the other courses for which I had no aptitude suddenly fell by the wayside and I concentrated on the acting and, and that was that. What were you What were you majoring in before you? There was no major. I was just dabbling in that first year and taking physics and economics and philosophy and English and, and uh, you know, physics of course, I suppose on some level to try and please my parents, but um, please my dad. But, you know, I was fooling nobody. Did you get to do some theater in college? Yeah, we started out with uh, Scapino, oh, which wow. is a farce, right. right? Yeah, yeah. We did it. Yeah, we did a handful of things. And then I then I left school and started working professionally. Another foolish move. <laughs> Why would you say that? Oh, because I, 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 I regret not having completed university. I mean, it seems to have, you, you seem to have landed on your feet. No, I mean, I was sort of self-educated, I guess, but that's, uh, you know, it, it, really, if you take university seriously, you learn how to think. And I don't think I, my study habits are, could have been, could have been cultivated, I think, in a, in a more efficient way. Did I read that you briefly spent time working on an oil rig? Uh, no, on a drill rig, drilling for- I beg your pardon. A, a, a rig, nonetheless, but uh, drilling for coal. So when it, when they're trying to figure out where to dig a mine, you send drillers by helicopter up into the mountains with pieces of the drill. You assemble the drill, and then you work for 12 hours a day, seven days a week for six weeks at a stretch. Drilling, we were using a H rod. There's all different gauges of rods, but with the H rod we were using, you'd bring up a core that's about two inches across and six feet long. So you drill down, you might get I forget what we were making. Depends how soft the rock is, but uh, you might get 80 feet of core in a day or 150 feet of core a day, and then you get bonuses for for extra core beyond the expectations. And uh, you bring up the core, you lay it out in boxes, and then the geologists come and look at it and see where the veins are, and as a consequence, they decide where to mine. How long it's did a profile. You do that? It's like a. It's it's basically you're taking a, a substrata profile, right? Your um, uh, this is I can hear your father, the the geologist, uh, coming through a little bit. This is uh, <laughs> probably yeah. uh, this is this is pretty impressive. This is uh, this is great. You, it, it's funny. You, you're so far, you've been so self deprecating. Uh, if you knew me better, um, you'd know why. It's perfectly justified. Well, well, okay, but you've got this verbal authority that comes through your roles really well, which is why you know, for a Canadian, you play a lot of American presidents, um, and it's it, there's this this calm smartest guy in the room quality that you you bring to a lot of your roles so we're, i want to double back to to saint elsewhere for a moment because here you are you come in in the last two seasons of a pretty successful show mm -hmm. and and i've talked to a lot of actors about this is there a sense of like oh god i'm hopping onto a moving train here what is this you know, is, is there something scary about like showing up everybody knows each other and you're just sort of like the new you know hot surgeon um, yeah, of course there is. It's a, but you know, you're young and you just go, that train's moving. I'm going to jump on it. And you know, if I, I get banged around a little, I'll survive, you know, um, it, you, and you watch carefully, you look at the people that have been, been on the show for years and you watch and you take a cue from what their vibe is and how they absorb challenges and how they meet the challenges and how much they fool around, how much they don't fool around, what the level of of fun is as opposed to the level of no bullshit get to work, you know, and try and take a cue from them, from the people that you respect. And then you, at the same time, you look at the, there's always going to be a, you know, somebody where you go, Oh, that's, that's who I don't want to be. 
I won't press you on the second one, but I'll press you on the first one. Who were the people you were like that? I want to, I want to do that. I want to, were you looking at like William Daniels and being well, like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the absolutely. Yeah. Bill Daniels and Denzel and, and, um, and Begley was great. And I mean, actually everybody on that show was wonderful. I was very, I was, I was welcomed there and uh, I, I was tremendously fortunate. You, you touched on some pretty hot button stuff, especially for the eighties. Um, if I'm, if, if memory serves, your character is exposed to HIV. Is that right? Yeah, because a needle At prick. At one point, yeah, he gets a needle prick. That's right. Yeah, an accidental needle prick, and then and then has a literal come to Jesus moment. Are are you? I mean, AIDS was really not being discussed on '80s television at all yeah. was, was yeah. were you aware of the responsibility that was coming with that or was it like just a, a gig or i mean it was a very delicate thing to get right there was so much misinformation at the time um did you kind of feel that responsibility or were you just like this is the gig let's just keep our eye on the script and and trust the writers uh well uh, a little bit of both but it's sort of knowing that that show was was focused on you know rattling the status quo a little bit um you you're conscious of that and in in script after script after script they they choose issues that needed to have a little bit of you know, have some light thrown on them in a different way so you're sort of you're constantly aware of that of the, i was how should i say this uh i was con consistently reminded that the show was addressing issue after issue that was unpopular or awkward or uh, you know a little bit in the shadows and and this was this was one of the larger issues that I was lucky to be able to participate in in shining a light on at the moment but uh, that's a that's a long-winded kind of mealy answer really I asked for I asked for kind of a, a long winded. Uh, that's fine. You're you're good. I'm asking like I'm asking real like process oriented stuff. Hey everybody, Tim Heidecker here with huge news. Office Hours Live recorded another episode live. It was one of our great ones with the great Rory Scovel, who's got a new special out on MAX. Oh, yeah. And the Trinity's here. DJ Doug Pound. Yes, hello. And Victor Berger the Fourth. Hi, hi, hi. Can't we, wait for the fifth. We enjoy the heck out of doing the show, and so will you. If you find us on the podcast app of your choice, now. You've dealt with a lot of really heavy stuff for someone who is is in person kind of dry and funny. You're in probably one of my favorite movies that I've only managed to see once because it's so devastating. Uh, no one gets any bonus points for guessing that I'm talking about The Sweet Hereafter. Mm -hmm. um, I I love that movie. I think it's kind of perfect, but it is it is a it's very tough. Briefly, it's about. Uh, a, a school bus in a very small town that um, plunges into a lake and basically wipes out an entire generation of this small town. When you're working on material like that, it's a location shoot. Where did you shoot that? I know you shot it in Canada, but it yeah, we shot it. Remote. We started uh, north of Toronto and then went out to the uh, to the the interior of BC, the mountainous country in BC, in the interior. So you're out on location very very cold kind of desolate how do you how do you keep your your wits about you how do you not like let that material just just plunge you into depression or do you do you just let it happen and use it i just i just feel like there would be such an emotional price to pay doing that kind of material uh well it's but it's it's what you sign on for and one of the things that's so um rewarding about doing that kind of material is you are asked to, you know, absorb those, those events in a way that kind of gut punch you. And that's part of the, this part of the territory you signed on to experience. So 
you know, it's uh, it's a gift that you actually get to be in that place for a while. And it, yeah, it's going to be, it can be exhausting and have you staring at the ceiling in the middle of the night, but that's just part of the process and it's fine. I love the idea of viewing it as a gift. I, w- I would love to, you know, mine that a, a little bit more. Oh, that's interesting. Mining. Huh? I just, <laughs> I just found a, I've just found a through line getting in down your, to the uh, core. Yeah. getting down to the core to the, to the stuff that's, that's usable. Um, it's such a it's such a, a beautiful film. Were you surprised? Uh, did you when you're doing this? Because it was I remember it being just like one of the best reviewed movies of that year. I mm-hmm. mean, people just adored that film. Did you have a feeling as you were making like, oh, we're doing something kind of special here? Yes, we I think we did. Um, but it wasn't but not in any kind of comparative way. Not that this will be special where other things are where it's going <laughs> to it's going to be seen or that it's going to be on the radar. Um because of course, because everybody knows on a cellular level, you you can't ever predict that. But I think more than that, it was we just everybody was really dialed in, and we felt like we were making something good. And whether people saw it or whether they didn't see it was not not ever really a consideration. You know, it wasn't like anybody when we went to the bar at night said, "Man, this is going to be really good. This is we're killing it." You know, this is really <laughs> you know there was none of that at all. It was just. It was just work and interesting. It, it's such an interesting piece of work. And it even has its, its moments of sort of dry wit running through it, um, despite its its incredibly tough subject matter. You've played so many real people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that always kind of, I, I can never book uh, the real people uh, uh, gigs for whatever reason. Um, but I, I, it's the damnedest thing. I'm constantly, I'll pay people who like, Oh yeah, I'm actually, you put glasses on me. I'm a dead ringer for that guy. And for whatever reason, it doesn't pan out, but I'm, I'm looking at like, I'm looking, I've got the list here of JFK, Gil Garcetti, Robert McNamara. You played both JFK and Robert McNamara in two separate pieces. That's nuts. I want to talk about your JFK in 13 days. Cause I think that's a really special piece of work. First off, that's got to be one of the hardest American accents. Upper class Boston, that Kennedy Boston Brahmin accent is so easy to delve into caricature and you don't. A dialect coach, are you just really good with accents? I mean, you you go into, you can fall into like sounding like a laugh-in sketch so quickly doing Boston yeah. Brahmin and you never do. It's so... It's so dialed in. Did you work with somebody for that or are you just that fucking good? Um, I, I worked with a guy. I, I had one meeting with a guy. Um, but I, what I did, what I, what I really used was um, I got a bunch of tapes from the Library of Congress. And, and I put them into my computer. And this was like, I, I might have been running an Atari back then. Right. And I might have been running this is like, like 99, 2000, yeah, somewhere like, in there, right? Yeah. Something like that. And, and, uh, you know, like Logic 3 or Logic 2, like really, really early. And I put up the waveforms and I, so I'd compare his waveforms to mine and look where the frequencies were. And, and, um, and then. Are you serious? Uh huh. Yeah, and then you looked at you looked at the way the at, at the way yeah I looked the, at the, the waveforms and I analyzed the, on the screen analyzed the frequencies and stuff, but that was just sort of a, a like as an opener because what what I realized doing the research was that his oratorical voice, if that's a word, um, was a, about an octave higher than his conversational voice, and that's where the Boston Brahmin thing becomes a huge trap, right, and. And, and I thought, well, I had this one Pulaski day speech in the movie. So I'll, I'll try and dial into that higher, that higher timber, that higher octave and really mimic it for lack of a better word. And, and then I'll, so I'll, I can, if I do that, then I can prove that I know what that is. So when I drop into the lower register, which people are for most part unfamiliar with, they'll, they'll buy that I'm doing that on purpose. We shot that scene, the Pulaski speech, where I did it in the high register, and it sounds much more like the traditional JFK, but it didn't make the cut. So it was, it, it wasn't, you know, Roger just decided that scene wasn't necessary. 
that's right. That's Roger Roger Donaldson, the director. Yeah, the director. So it ended up being the much uh, lower version of you know, but it was interesting because his all the tapes of him just talking to Bobby and talking to you know Kenny were very you know very very low and creaky. So um, I guess that's how I maybe if I if I dodge the bullet, that's how that's what helped me. Well, I think it's important to recognize that you know the when you're playing these real people that there's the there's a public voice and there's a, a private voice. There's a presentational uh, JFK yeah, yeah. and there's a more intimate JFK. Um, the characters got, I mean, that movie moves very very quickly and mm-hmm. a ton happens in 13 days and it's terrifying. And um, but there's moments when you see the the sort of crack in the facade there's a great scene in the oval office where you're washing pills down with with scotch and was that was that your choice is that in the script or like how are you like i gotta show this this is a guy who has the weight of the world on a really bad back uh was that a was that a a thing that you brought to it or was that in the script that they were going to kind of acknowledge like his incredible physical discomfort the man's in for so much of it um, I don't, you know, is there really a, a scene where I'm taking a pain pill? I know there's a scene where, where before I'm, before he goes on television to address the nation, um, Costner's character offers me a scotch and it was up to me to take a drink or not. And I chose not to, I mean, who knows if that happened, but I didn't want to suggest that he needed a drink before going on TV. In fact, I wanted to suggest the opposite, that he was so committed to his point of view that the gesture of being offered a drink was appreciated, but thoroughly unnecessary. There's a moment, I think, I think there's a private moment in the Oval Office where you're, you're doing, and I've got some back issues myself, so it really resonated with me, mm-hmm. um, where you're like moving from, you know, uh, from resolute desk to chair. One oh, of yeah, no, I was like, caught. Yeah, I mean, his his back was a, was just brutal to him, and as he and he was on all kinds of, of uh, all kinds of drugs to to help ameliorate that pain. But uh, and I I, exp- I experimented with wearing a back brace to see if that would work, but um, it didn't. I felt it felt it felt uh, I don't know. I just could I I couldn't. It felt too stiff or something. I don't know. I remember thinking, oh, this will really ah no, it's that's not helping. That's not helping. I'd rather just kind of pretend to feel the pain. That's interesting. The old uh, Lawrence Olivier, Dustin Hoffman. Just act, dear boy. uh, Just act. Since you brought up actual audio frequencies, uh, I'm looking at your setup right now at your your home studio. Um, You do a ton of voice work. Um, I, I do a little bit of voice work. This is mostly for music though. What, what did you, uh, what'd you grow up listening to? Oh, like I'm, you know, I'm 64 years old. So it was like, uh, I guess the first, I mean, the first album I had was high tide and green grass by the stones. Okay. And then, uh, you know, I was listening, you know, in high school I was listening to like the almond brothers and the doobies and, and, uh, then I got into blues. I got into like Chester Burnett and and uh, Robert Johnson and and um, you know a lot of the older blues players. And you know, then I discovered Clapton, and I was completely hooked on um, on a guy named uh, um, Mike Harrison, who was a lead singer for Spooky Tooth, who did a cover of Smokestack Lightning that was that blew my mind. And um, you play guitar, yeah. So, I mean, lots of like 70s, 80s rock and that's, you know, sorry, that's when I, that's when I was growing up, you know. No, that's that's nothing to apologize for. Do you do you, do you record a lot of music? You, I know you're using Logic right now, which is such a great uh, intuitive software for recording. Do you, do you record a lot of your own stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Recording all the time, playing all the time, writing all the time. That's it's such a great uh craft songwriting isn't it it's just like the, yeah. the that sense of like the accomplishment of like creating something that's three minutes and like boom that it came out of nowhere i i made that there's it's just the most i've been doing a ton during the pandemic myself oh so have you it's it's yeah yeah i mean it's just it's so therapeutic well, um, i, I saw a really a, interesting interview with chris martin last night that was part of the bg special that frank marshall directed on hbo 
which is fantastic. I just have you seen it a couple it? weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, it's so, so I just great. stumbled on it last night, and uh, and Chris Martin says this thing about songwriting when he's when he's talking about the Bee Gees being such great songwriters, and he says, you don't you don't really you you don't really write a song, you receive a song. Yeah, that that was you know, amazing. You receive his, a great his... song, and that's not to say that I've written even one great song, but occasionally stuff you kind of go, wow, that's. God, that's oh, that feels good. I wonder how did I how did that happen? You know, when when you've got like a melody line over like just a surprise chord, and you can you can kind of shock yourself. There's nothing yeah. like it. Yeah, I uh, I'm 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 gonna tangent on this Bee Gees movie because I could not believe how much I enjoyed it. I, Me too. I everyone was like, you got to see the Bee Gees movie, and I'm like, I'm a casual. I mean, like I'm not gonna hate on the Bee Gees, but really? And they're like, trust me, you got to see this thing. And I was, was look at, I had, I, would I be willing to admit this if I hadn't been reminded by seeing this documentary? I don't know. But I was always moved by their voices. It was like, I was, so... I was, I was always really touched like Massachusetts. And I mean, you know, it's just, it reaches right in. There's something about that stimma. There's something about those tones that, uh, that that you know they have that just just grips your heart you know i was well there's a couple of moments there's an incredible moment where uh gallagher is talking about uh how moved he is at the sounds of brothers singing together yeah which is so poignant since he hates his brother yeah um yeah. but um i i was also i i will admit that i i knew the the because I'm I'm about to be fifty, so I I, I know the disco stuff. Right. I was not familiar with the gorgeous Brit pop uh, that comes before that. Yeah, and yeah. and the mining disaster and yes. the weird sort of like all like the the elements of of English folk that are worked into it, and it's it's there's a massive discography. I feel like I've just hit this treasure trove. Because I went into uh, uh, Apple Music and there's just albums and albums of stuff that I've never heard. And it's beautiful. And yeah. Haunting. And they came, they walked in, they sat down, they grabbed a guitar and they turned on the two inch and it started, it started rolling and they just make the stuff up. I mean, it's just like, what? No, yeah, no, we don't really, we don't write our um, lyrics until we get in the, in the studio, really. No, we just sort of do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, God, I could spend hours on the Bee Gees thing. I couldn't believe how much I, I enjoyed that. Let's switch gears for a moment here. Um, uh, I, I was so pleasantly surprised um, to to watch your episode of Wet Hot American Summer first day of camp <laughs> because you, you're one of those guys who is so you know, we, we keep talking about like all, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis, dead Canadian kids. We keep right. talking about all this heavy, dramatic stuff you do. You hardly ever get a chance to do comedy. And if I may say, you're really funny. You've got this this wonderful wit to you. Is a moment like that just, is it really like the first day of camp for you? Is it just like so liberating to get to do something? Oh, yeah. I mean, comedic, I would much but... rather, uh, if I could, if I could, you know, finish out this career just doing pratfalls, I'd be, I'd be <laughs> nothing would make me happier. I, uh, it's, you know, it's much harder to be funny on purpose than it is to be, you know, funny in a conversation and, you know, an opportunity arises and you find a good turn of phrase or you make a joke, but you know, comedy is hard, like they say, but, uh, I, I would love to do more of that, but it's just, I've, you know, I fell into doing serious stuff and that's how people see you. And, you know, so, you know, when we did, uh, like Kingsman too, that was, you know, playing another president, that was a chance to do something where you get to chew the scenery. And I, I just, I love doing that. Did Wet Hot uh, kind of fall into your lap or did they just reach out to you like, hey, do you want to do something completely unusual? Yes. It was, you want to do something? In, yeah. You want to come and play? I went, yeah. Hell yeah. You play this sort of anachronistic, weirdly Southern lawyer. The tone on that show is interesting because there's really nothing like it. It's not it's not multicam sitcom. It's not even single cam. It's really broad, really surreal. Do you get into the mechanics of it or you just kind of show up and be like, OK, I'm just going to be like mean Atticus Finch and here we go. It's one of those things where you just get there on the day and you and you hope you don't suck, you know? <laughs> and a lot of those actors can do deadpan funny and they can do banana peel funny and you're kind of going well they can do it all uh where do where should what should i where do i uh, oh god you know uh, 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 and you just you know tip over and you know hope when you fall down the stairs somebody laughs 
So the answer is that, like me, you go wildly into your head. Okay, good to know. Yeah, that's, yes, uh, that's, yes. That's, it's that's, just that's, yeah, you. yeah. <laughs> that's very soothing. No, but I mean, it's interesting because you you do both in that in this episode. Um, uh, it's you you have the moment of sort of like dry subtlety, but you also have the moment where you're literally climbing atop a cro- a conference table, getting up in Michael Sarah's mm-hmm. uh, uh, face, and it was just so fun. It was just this infectious joy coming off the screen. Uh, it was it was really satisfying to watch someone who is constantly playing like the smartest guy in the room, uh, who who is you know whether it's Doctor Bell, whether it's JFK, whether it's you know Gil Garcetti. You know you're just constantly like, but, but to be such a a, a over the top goof while still bringing still grounding it, um, it was just a delight to watch. I'm just kissing I think it's probably right that's probably closer to my. That's probably closer to my real personality than the smartest guy in the room. I'm probably I'm probably closer to the dumbest guy in the room who's, you know, <laughs> w- willing willing to be seen to be the dumbest guy in the room, moreover. I, I went back um, while I was doing my, my homework for this. I went back to John from Cincinnati, mm-hmm. um, which I I loved. It was the it was the David Milt show that followed Deadwood. And there was yeah. a ton of um I felt like there was a ton of unfair expectation heaped upon it. You know, I was like, what is coming next from the guy who brought us Deadwood? You know, mm-hmm. and there were, there was just a lot of, of, uh, and it's this very kind of interesting surfing religious allegory. What was that show like to work on? I've, I've talked to some people who, who said like they were getting a lot of last minute changes and, uh, they oh, nothing, nothing Diego. but last minute changes. It was, it was, uh, you never knew what you were going to be doing on any given day. And I, I found that, really difficult but um you know and 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 david is one of the you know at the time was one of those guys who just seemed to take take dictation from some incredibly high place and when the and the muse was always available and 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 he was always just pouring new stuff on everybody and um and i think in defense of the piece that when where people say, well, what the hell was it about? He had such a long view that it was only going to be visible after a hundred episodes, and he didn't care to tease you with with promises of resolution any earlier than that. So, and that was and that was bold, and and I and I guess people at some point just went, what the hell is this about? I can't, I, I you know, I, I can't, uh, what? And they didn't. You know, they didn't let it go longer than a season. But I think, uh, I think, I mean, in fact, David told me, look, you're not going to get it until 100 episodes in. That's a shame because I, I, I was, I was in it. I was, I was really enjoying it. And it was such an interesting, what's interesting about the show was the way it looked at faith in kind of a, a bold way. And I mean, I know you're saying that, that Milch was very, you know, deliberately kind of obscure about it but did you were you just in a place where you're like i'm just going to trust david uh uh and and go with it but like i mean your your grandson has like this miracle recovery really early on really early on and there's this messianic figure the the title character um did you find yourself sort of re-examining faith while you were working on it? Did you find yourself sort of, you know, questioning your, I have no idea what your religious beliefs are, if they're there at all, but like, do you find yourself like rethinking religion's role in everyday life when you're working on something like that? It didn't happen for me that way. No, I was so overwhelmed with, with trying to acquit the duties that I was, that I was handed on a day-to-day basis that, you know, it was it was more more looking for faith in yourself than looking for faith somewhere else. You know, uh, to try and get through the day. That's gorgeous. It's so interesting because there's there's so many times when we are not allowed to look at big picture because you know we've just got you know we've just gotten you know the goldenrod pages that morning. So you know what the hell are we doing right, here? Right. Um, I, he, I, he strikes me as one of those guys who like the Bee Gees kind of receives songs, you know, rather oh, than, yeah. than sits oh, down. Yeah. 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 I mean, and he, but his, and his, his gift for dialogue, right. Is just, is it's so specific character to character that, I mean, I mean, you've worked on regular television shows where where 
and you've probably been on sets where the director will go, well, you know what, why don't you guys flip those lines? Why don't you say that and you say that? And nobody, you know, character cadence, nobody's going to know the difference because it's just, here, I'll, I'll, let me t- I'm going to take this plate of exposition, you take that plate of exposition, and then I'll serve you this plate of exposition, then you serve me that plate of exposition. Uh, and then, you know what, let's each reserve the plate to each other and then, and we'll put it all together and we'll say it again for the audience. There's, n- you know, it was none of that. It was all, it's every character had a specific voice um, in terms of, in terms of their, uh, their grasp of the language. Well, he's got right? such a elegant mix of the sacred and the profane, you know, like every, mm-hmm. every yeah. fuck is there for a reason. Yeah. And I, I remember, I've been, I've been watching so much of your, um, uh, you know, I went on a, a binge of a lot of your network stuff or 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 your work in the Star Trek movies. No, 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 no. We'll have none of that. Um, when I was watching John from Cincinnati and you and you talk about the fucking judges and the surfing contest, I was like, oh, wow, I haven't heard Bruce Curse in in in, in weeks. This is weird. Um, and, but <laughs> but everything has its everything has its place in in that world. And is it one of those things where like, if you say won't instead of will not, he comes over to you and goes, no, sorry, that's not a contraction. That's will not. Is he, is it that uh, specific? I, I would, I don't, I don't know that ever, that ever happened to me, but I wouldn't surprise me. Um, but cause you read the stuff and you just go, I, I get it. I mean, this is hard to deliver, but it's here for a reason. Yeah. There's, there's, there's never a contraction or, or, or a malapropism that isn't on purpose. Oh God, he loves the malapropisms. He loves to like have uh, people pretend to be the smartest person in the room and and just butcher the language for for good reason. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite things about his writing. When you when you were coming up as a, a young actor. Were there people you looked at um, in terms of either craft or in terms of their career trajectory where you were like that? I want to I would love to have something like that. No, I was never uh, although I was ambitious, I was never ambitious in that sort of in that uh, smart kind of way. Um, Brad Dourif was somebody that I that I revered. Oh, I'm if dying you, to get Brad on this show. I am dying to get. Brad oh, on are you? Show. Yeah. Well, I, he was. He was. He was really the. Re, I mean, if I had to point to an actor that made me want to try this, it was him. In Cuckoo's Nest. In Cuckoo's Nest, sure, sure. Where he's he's Billy. Billy um, Bibbit. Yeah. Uh, Billy Bibbit. Yeah. Um, which is it the you know the most heartbreaking part of a very heartbreaking movie. But he has he has other things like do you remember um uh the Jonestown. Uh, miniseries with oh uh, god that's right yeah the one with powers booth with powers booth there's a scene with Dorif where booth is in the foreground delivering a monologue and booth was spectacular in that thing it's right? uncanny it's uncanny how good he is in that role Rest and his soul. uh and in the background brad Dorif is preparing a bunch of uh kool-aid or syringes or something Kool-Aid. i've forgotten now yeah. but his his attention to detail and his complete devotion to this task was so powerful for me that I absorbed what powers Booth was doing in the foreground, but I was riveted on Brad Dourif in the background. And it's not, and he was not stealing the scene, you know? No, he's just focused. He's not stealing focus. He's just focused. He wasn't, he wasn't winking at the camera. He wasn't doing something to draw focus. He was, he was just doing the thing. And I was, wow. Yeah. So speaking of Milch again, Dorif's work on Deadwood yeah. is astonishing where he's he's this doctor with PTSD and no one has a name for that. And he's just this this walking emotional war wound. And he's so compelling. And so um, he just draws the eye from his 20s into he guys guys got to be in his 70s by now um he's he's just an absolute delight to watch i yeah. i love that yeah. guy i'm so i'm so glad i'm always glad to be another Brad Dorif uh, fan i, w- I want to talk for a moment about about the resident and how they've they've kind of moved the character around a little bit from 
just impossibly arrogant guy whose face is literally on the side of the hospital to something a little more vulnerable. It was abundantly clear very quickly that he couldn't he couldn't continue to be that baldly um, abusive and manipulative without without facing the consequences. And those consequences would have been removing him unless uh, removing him from his position and bouncing him off the show. It was to me, it was it was clear almost from the pilot that there wasn't a lot of room unless they wanted to be very, very subtle, which is not part of network television's mandate. Um, There was not going to be room for him to be as Machiavellian as they initially drew him. So they had to create an event or a series of events that would have him have his come to Jesus moment and, uh, you know, turn a corner and be, be a more decent human being. It's not always a natural move for um, a network show to notice that though, and to acknowledge the fact that like, oh, if this guy keeps conducting himself like this, he will be fired. I would gently and appreciatively point towards Steve Carell on The Office, um, whose character leaves of his own <laughs> volition, even though he would have been fired 80 episodes. I've worked in offices. They don't let you do that. No, but that's the <laughs> um, whole, but that's, that, those, that's apples I realize oranges, that's comedy. You know? I realize it's comedy. I realize it's comedy, but there is something to be said for the fact that, like, no, we've got to give this guy sort of a reason to, uh, to not just for the audience to root for him, but for him to stick around. I mean, those doctors exist, and they, and they, they can they continue to to thrive under you know, under the radar while they while they dish out all kinds of bad medicine. So, right. but it requires a really, really delicate, subtle hand and detail-oriented stuff that takes time to illustrate, to explain how a doctor can get away with behavior like that. And and network television does not have the time in a you know seven-act format, forty-two minutes long. The, the The framework isn't isn't there for for that kind of quick storytelling to do justice to how how Machiavellian some of those people can be. So then it falls to you to to a certain extent. If it's not on the page, then it falls to the actor to to bring that sort of like um gradual growth to Well, yeah, to b- bring that how, that believability so that you can so that the audience might believe that somehow he managed not to get fired given what he'd done. And I, th- I and I don't think I succeeded in that in that effort at all. At all. Really? No. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, you look at the first six months of the se- the first, first six months of the show, and I, I would go, this guy's out of here. He's got to go. I heard David Chase give an interview one time, and I think we'd both probably agree that Sopranos is pretty special TV, but I heard David Chase give an interview one time where he acknowledged that Christopher Maltesante would have made it about four episodes before someone took him behind a shed and popped one in the back of his head. Um, but the character was so interesting and so likable that they kept him around. Um, and that's, that's premium cable. That's not network, you know? So there's, I think there's a lot to be said for, um, for, you know, the writers recognizing when they've got an interesting guy and sort of letting him evolve, even if it stretches credulity a little bit. Speaking of mm-hmm. the delicate touch, how do you approach something like, um, because the character has a has a is it is it actually Parkinson's? He has a tremor at one. Oh, point. early on he had a, early on yeah. he had a tr- he had some kind of tremor that was never never completely diagnosed. That they decided sort of magically went away. I feel like you're the sort of person who talked to neurologists about that sort of thing. I feel like you were the kind of person who like didn't just go, oh, okay, so I have to shake and that's it. <laughs> yeah, of course. But so he tried to come up with a, you know, a handful of things that might have that might have contributed to that to that behavior, right? Um but we the, I don't think they ever landed on anything and um and it was never it just kind of went away. It wasn't it was it went to the island of lost stories. Right? <laughs> and that that happens in network TV all the time and, and you know, and it it happens in movies too. I mean, it happens in there's a series I'm watching right now that's on HBO that is fantastic, and I'm. But there's a couple of things you're just going, what, what, what happened to what about what? 
And then you go, I don't care. It's fun. Uh, I won't keep you much longer. Um, uh, given that we we have long careers and and things come and go and uh, and bygones are bygones, is there a role that got away from Bruce Greenwood where you're like, ah, shit, ah, that would have been great? Well, you know, it's hard to know. I I used to tell myself that, uh, you know, I've auditioned like you have for a million things that you didn't get, and how do you, you know, so are those the ones that got away, or are those the ones that you just weren't good enough to get? You know, probably the latter. Right. No, totally. So, uh, so it's not like they got away. I should have got that one. God damn it! I was so close. You know, if I if I'd worn a different shirt, it would have turned out differently. You know, that's my only problem. I was late. I had to. I had to run. I was panting. You know, whatever. <laughs> the traffic on Ventura. I've got a. I've got a, a thousand excuses for why auditions went horribly. You know, and none of them have to do with me being unprepared. But, uh, you know, I, I remember auditioning for Jurassic Park for Sam Neill's role. Oh, of course. Oh, wow. Interesting. Right. Interesting. And, and I and I honestly don't know if and I didn't have it never occurred to me to ask Stephen this when I finally worked with him. But I remember thinking first either being told or thinking or completely fabricating the idea that I got really close on that, you know, but. I don't know. I mean, I auditioned for Top Gun too, you know, and top, I mean Top Gun as well, not Top Gun Two, if there was such a thing. Who did you audition for in Top Gun? I can't Maverick? remember. I don't. I can't you don't remember. remember. Good for you. Good for you, man. That's awesome. Nor should you. But I, some of the actors that um, I, I thought you were going to ask me about actors that I love at the moment, and uh, so I just wrote a teeny little list, and it's. Uh, and there's and it's not and it's not exclusive a, 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 at all. It was just like bing 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 bing. Um, ben Mendelsohn. I'm a yeah. huge fan of Brian Cox. And yeah. I'm on a I'm on a Kate Winslet Gene Smart kick right now for obvious reasons. Sure, of course. Ben Riz Ahmed, who blew my mind this year. That is a and, beautiful uh, performance. And Leslie Manville. Leslie I'm, Manville. Oh wow. She's just like, she's the shit. I just, I'm crazy about her. She's so great. She's heartbreaking in one of my favorite movies. Do you know Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy? You know, I, I, uh, no, I have to say no. It's the story of Gilbert and Sullivan writing the Mikado, basically. And it's, oh, but wow. it's like a procedural. It's, it's, a, it's, it just takes you like the nuts and bolts of the creative process. And she plays um, Gilbert's wife, Gilbert's lawn suffering wife. And, she has a you're in for a treat. Go, oh, good. Go, OK, thanks. Thanks. Go go watch that. And you're you're really in for if you're a Leslie Manville fan, you're really in for a treat. But let's talk for a moment about Riz Ahmed. That that work he did. And I, I've loved him. I loved him in The Night Of. He's great in Nightcrawler. But there is something about the work he did in Sound of Metal that was. Yeah, I, but I'm like I'm, I'm a sucker for anything that has anything to do with music. Right. So I hadn't heard anything yeah, about sure. this is long before. This is it, just when it first came on Netflix. And, um, and I was, you know, because you liked, you know, the story of the stones or whatever, it came up. So I started watching it and it starts out with that, you know, they're this heavy metal duo. Right. And, and I'm kind of, and I'm watching, I'm watching, I'm going, and I didn't recognize him. I didn't remember him. I didn't recognize him from the night of, I didn't, I, I, it was, he was so real that I, you know, I was like 10 minutes in and I went, oh, my God, these this, these two are. And what's her name? Um, Booth. Uh, is it Olivia Booth? Olivia, Olivia Booth. Maybe. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. But the two of them, I, I was just I was just astonished at the at the visceral moment to moment, com, uh, completely realized behavior. And I, I I was just riveted and I was and I was so stunned by the whole thing. And I sat there watching the credits going, Oh my God, who, who's responsible for this? And how did, how did this movie get made? And then I see Derek C and Francis name scroll up. And because I've worked with him a couple of times, I texted him right away and I go, Oh my fuck me, man. This is, I couldn't fucking believe it. I was just watching this thing. This guy's, this, this is so great. And then I see that you're involved. Congratulations. Wow. God damn it. Nobody else ever sees it. I think it's fucking awesome. 
And um, uh, it, it's Olivia Cook, by the way. Olivia and, Cook, um, yeah. yeah, you you worked with him on um, I know this much is true and Place Beyond the Pines. Yeah, he's got. I mean, but he's got such a there's such a patient storytelling quality to the way. Oh, if you ever get the chance, you gotta. I mean, run, don't walk. I no, I'd, I'd in a heartbeat. I I I would love to. Um, what was great about Sound of Metal is that. You know, anytime you get a chance to to because everything is just so relentlessly fast paced and anytime mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you you get to see like a quiet, deliberately paced indie like that, it just it just gives me hope for everything. It just gives me hope for the American attention span. Well, yeah, the irony is that 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 quietly paced independent thing is riveting. Yeah, you know, that's like, the thing. Yeah, it's so well done. I I don't need a cut. I don't need. I just I just want to live with this character. The sound in that thing, just the the way they handled the the cochlear implants and the way they handled yeah. the the, oh, way yeah. the sound kind of sound was. Oh yeah. Oh, and then and then you're with him when he enjoys the silence at the spoiler alert. When he enjoys the silence at the end, it's just incredible. Um, man, I could. Did you see Gunda? Uh, no, Gunda. No, I haven't. That's the uh, Joaquin Phoenix produced it. It's the it's the um, black and white movie about a pig and her piglets, and it also spends some time in a dairy farm. It was nominated this uh, year. It's oh a, yeah, I see. Okay, uh, it's an American Norwegian documentary on the daily life of a pig. Okay, and it's all you should watch it. It's and, the, and because we're talking about music. There isn't any. Okay. So it's it, there's there's not a there's not a note that tells you how to feel emotionally. That's interesting. And and That's what what happens as a result emotionally is symphonic. That's a carefully chosen word. Yeah, it's it's really it's really something from a from an emotional point of view and from a technical point of view and from a, and in terms of its 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 ethical value it's. Um, non-pari. All right. So I've got my marching orders. I've got uh, this American Norwegian uh, movie to watch. You've got to watch Topsy Turvy. Yeah. Um, and I'm going back into, uh, I'm putting my absolute shoulder to the wheel, getting Brad Dourif on this show. Yeah. Good. And, good. And, yeah. That's, these, these are our goals here. Bruce Greenwood, I cannot thank you enough. I've been a fan for years. This was really a delight. Well, it was a pleasure for me too. I've enjoyed it immensely. And that is an episode wrap on fellow Brad Dourif fanboy Bruce Greenwood, who you can follow on social media at official Bruce Greenwood on Instagram and at Greenwood Bruce on Twitter. And you can watch him on Fox's The Resident. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Uh.